Good morning, everyone. This is Claudia Shamba. I'm your host, welcoming you to the March 18, 2014 edition of Ask a Leader. Here to help us develop a deeper awareness about our drought will be my first guests, members of the UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling team, Nita Bajor, Alice Thomas, and A.J. Purdy, along with Irvine Water Management District Board member Steve Lamar and Fiona Sanchez, Director of Water Resources for Irvine Ranch Water District and the Board Chair of the California Urban Water Conservation Council. Then, during the second half of the show, we'll have on... Eddie Hayes, curator of the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach, who will present precious glimpses into the recently opened exhibit, Frida Kahlo, Her Photos. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. Here, um, and welcome back and to the show and the brain trust that I've assembled here to take up the drought, which is our drought. And I hope you'll bear with my protracted introduction, since we all have uh, immensely local reminders that the public falls fails to grasp the seriousness the depths of the crisis, I turn not only to the UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling team, but also Steve Lamar and Fiona Sanchez of the Irvine Ranch Water District. First, Nita Bajor is a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow working on an understanding and improving irrigation efficiency of landscapes in Orange County. Get it, folks? This is all about you. Our takeaway, the whole interview. Next is... UCI Earth System Science PhD candidate Alice Thomas with a background in hydrology, social science, and meteorology. Her research focuses on drought characteristics and deficiencies using information from satellites and computer models. Then A.J. Purdy is also a PhD candidate in the Department of Earth Science System, System Science, uh, developing high-resolution models on evapotranspiration for California. These three scholars join me here in Studio A. And on the line are my other two guests from Irvine Ranch Water District. Board member Stephen Lamar was appointed to the district's board in 2009. Steve is a water policy and planning expert with 20 years under his belt on statewide business and industry committees and has directly participated in many major water policy forums. His bachelor's degree in political science is from Pittsburgh State University, and he completed a certificate from the Environmental Management Institute with the EPA Environmental Training Program administered by USC. Fiona Sanchez is the director of water resources for the Irvine Ranch Water District and the board chair of the California Urban Water Conservation Council. She has over 20 years of experience in water use efficiency, 10 of which have been at IRWD. We're going to shorten that. That's the reference to the, the effete ranch, Irvine Ranch Water District here locally. She earned her, Fiona Sanchez earned her B.A. in history and economics from UC Riverside and her MBA is from UCI. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. We've got lots of track. We've got five voices, uh, listeners, so we are going to challenge you not only to keep track of the, the sources, but also keep track. Everyone think of your role as we're going to lay out this dire situation. I don't care how green everything looks. I don't care what the tap water looks like coming out of the faucet, the, the, into the, the tub. But it is, this crisis is real, and we're going to paint it as vividly as we can. So let's begin. Perhaps Alice or AJ can address what we read, hear, and learn about California's drought. It's important to nail down how the water is being divided. So first, would you break down the users by proportion? That is the, uh, oh, actually, we're, no, I beg your pardon. We're going to have, um, Nita uh, will be um, addressing that. We're going to have her break down the users by proportion uh, between the agricultural, the industrial, and the residential sectors. For the state of California, about 80% of water is used for agriculture and about 20% for urban uses. In Orange County, which is highly urbanized, 
about 98% of water is used for urban purposes and only 2% for agriculture. Among the urban uses here, about 50% is from single-family residential use, 20% from multifamily, and about 28% is industrial use. Okay, so that's, we can get a little perspective, and I thank you for that, uh, how it's divvied up. So S Steve and Fiona of the Irvine Ranch Water District, in the scheme of things, when we break down where and who the water guzzlers are, how important is water conservation at the household level? Well, water conservation is absolutely uh, critical at the household uh, level. We're, we're very fortunate at uh, Irvine Ranch Water District because we've uh, diversified our water supply considerably over the last uh, 20 years, but still our probably greatest opportunities for water conservation are uh, looking at residential uses with a real focus on what's happening outside in terms of uh, landscaping. Okay, and we have we have the landscaping ex expert here too. Um, I guess we could hop to a, a question I planned on earlier, uh, later, is the landscaping includes golf courses. And I know, Steve, you're trying to manage. We're going to be adding another one at the Great Park, <clears throat> amazingly, unfortunately, I editorialized. But so uh, Nita can also talk about uh, some of that, th that formula, how that agricultural or the, the, the landscaping uh, irrigation, uh, where we can start to keep tightening it up and how much is being used currently. So lawn uses a lot of water. The average lawn at a home uses about 700 gallons of water per year. Now for a golf course, you could imagine that would be much greater. There are several ways we can cut back on that use. And one is by, uh, by watering lawn appropriately. So you can find out the correct watering rate at bewaterwise.com. Another way you can save water on your lawn is by getting a smart sensor that will irrigate at the appropriate rate. And then finally, you can also convert your landscape into native or drought-resistant species. And so at the Water District, are you working with these kinds of improvements around the city, Steve or Fiona? I'm not sure which one you prefer to take this up. Uh, in terms of providing incentives, uh, um, rebates, uh, demonstration projects. I know we're going to talk about events coming up uh, later on in this month, all the way through June and September. But are there there particular ways that you're addressing uh, this these incentives? Because so, hey. I know that the golf courses have a very traditional kind of landscape. So are you uh, firing them up a little bit to reconsider what what a green looks like? Well, this is Fiona. Let me go ahead and try and answer that one in two pieces. One is that um, the golf courses in our service area are primarily irrigated with recycled water and not potable water. So it's not, they are not irrigated with drinking water. About 24% of our demands actually are met uh, with recycled water in our service area. And in fact, you'll find that the golf courses are probably some of the best managed landscapes uh, in our area. They, they rely on it and depend upon it for their business. And so we've been fortunate. We work a lot with the golf courses in our service area, and I believe that they're actually probably some of the most efficient water use that we have in our area. And they do use um, automatic irrigation controls. They monitor those courses all the time. So we, they're actually an example of how you can manage water very efficiently. Um, in terms of incentives for outdoor use for residential, we have a whole new program called CalScape. It's uh, climate-appropriate landscaping for uh, homes and residents and businesses. And it's basically focused on putting in the right plants, watering them the right amount, and watering them at the right ta time with the right equipment. And we have turf replacement programs. We have an incentive which we've actually just increased to $2 per square foot. So for our customers who choose to take out some of their water-thirsty turf and put in more drought-tolerant plants, there's actually rebate incentives available. And we have workshops and we have events planned to assist customers with that. And since I know you're going to ask about that a little later, I'll, I'll hold off for giving you all the detail on that piece right now. But we have a lot of incentives. We have irrigation controller incentives. 
We have incentives for high-efficiency nozzles uh, on our website. So we are definitely being proactive and providing uh, a number of incentives to help our customers be more water efficient with their outdoor use. Well, we have large land developers now improving huge tracks for new subdivision phases. And of course, I'm thinking of five-point communities. Fiona, what are, how, to what extent are you working with Emil Haddad's company, with the Planning Commission, to, um, to, to leverage uh, some enlightened kinds of landscaping design schematics? Um, well, most of the, the new development that comes in, most of the common area, we require that it, again, be irrigated with Risaka water. Most of the uh, new developments are dual-plumbed, and those, that dual system is put in right from the get-go, so we're able to reduce water use there. And a lot of the new developments are focused on um, low-impact development, which includes installing drought-tolerant plants and landscapes so that they're not only more water efficient, but also in terms of water quality improvements and runoff reduction. Um, they're, they're much um, different than the older communities where you would have seen a lot of turf put in. And when you say jewel-plumbed, this is the, um, the, the, the well-known, what we see around here is those purple-capped, um, purple sprinkler heads that uh, that let us know that it's not potable water that uh, and, and to what extent are, are the, is the jewel plumbing a possibility in any retrofitting in other water management districts around the Southland around the state it's probably actually a little bit more challenging to retrofit we were fortunate in the Irvine area that when our developments went in um, some of the leaders at the time had the foresight to actually install the piping, uh, the dual pipe plumbing system right from the get-go. It's very expensive to tear up roads and to try and retrofit areas uh, with, with recycled water. So we're very fortunate in that. But in areas of new development, it is something that um, I think a lot of water districts are looking, looking to and trying to, to put in. Or I guess the only the the build out cities only in their in their infill perhaps development do they have a chance maybe in, but I don't know if you can fit you can't fit just one segment it's got to be the whole um, the whole distribution system that's going to have those that reclaim water introduced in that pipeline. That that's true, and we're one of our biggest uh, <coughs> capital projects at the. <clears throat> moment is we're expanding our Michelson water recycling plant from 18 million gallons a day to 28 million gallons a day, and we'll uh, have an opening for that later this year. Okay. Well, for those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader, and I have a cast of a thousand. I have with me here um, from the UC Center of Hydrologic Modeling is Nita Bajor. Alice Thomas and A.J. Purdy, and along with them are the two uh, Irvine Ranch Water District representatives, that's board member Stephen Lamar and Fiona Sanchez, the director of Water Resources Board. Here, uh, we're all streaming on the live for anyone beyond the 200-watt the range, streaming live on KUCI.org. So I want, I'm not sure if it's going to be A.J. or Alice talking to the longer-term complications implications of severe groundwater depletion. How close are we toward reconsidering the whole water distribution allocation picture? This is Alice. Yes. <clears throat> so uh, the possible effects of, of groundwater depletion, we have these lower water tables uh, that are affecting the environment and plants and aquatic species. And we have water level changes that, can, that are reaching up to 60 meters in the lower Tulare Basin. Uh, and that's like the height of about a 20-story building there. Uh, and, so, and also the degradation of groundwater quality is also an issue. <coughs> Excuse me. Salinity accumulation and contamination from saltwater uh, intrusion. We've had Jay Familieri talk about this, but while we're in the middle of this topic, though, when it's difficult when you've got a, a major depletion of this resource. It, it takes perhaps, uh, it, it's, it takes that much longer the lower the, the, the storm, the groundwater reserve is. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. Uh, there is a, a lag time between, you know, getting a recharge and rainfall into our aquifer systems. And so, the, yes, there is a longer time period. It takes longer for us to refill those aquifers. And we know that the, the California 
Public Utilities Commission is watching this, and I'm quoting from their one of their recent reports. If voluntary measures do not yield the necessary reduction in consumption or in circumstances of prolonged or severe drought, companies may apply to the, C- the California Public Utilities Commission to activate mandatory rationing after appropriate public notice and comment. So um, this is uh, we're we're headed we're headed down almost uh, I mean, it's pretty severe. So as the I'm not sure who would like to take this one up as the pitches in the media intensify as a society. We are slowly considering our choices in the marketplace that dry water consumption that's uh, it's not just what we're doing at the faucet, but we're we're also there's marketplace decisions. That other lever is where on the food chain that we're eating. I'm not sure who'd like to talk about uh, how we're underestimating how much water we're using based on uh, the the kinds of products that we're consuming as uh, as diners. Who would like to take that up? Well, Claudia, Claudia, if I could touch on that. Uh, First of all, I think it's important that your listeners understand there's a very big difference between what's going on in the Central Valley and what's happening in Orange County with groundwater. We have one of the best managed groundwater basins in the world in Orange County that provides a large supply of our water for primarily central and northern uh, parts of the county. The south county is very dependent upon imported water. IRWD has access to... Uh, our groundwater basin is part of our partnership with the Orange County Water District. And we also have another advantage in that uh, we have the groundwater replenishment system that's a joint project of the Orange County Water District and the Orange County Sanitation District that is now uh, using for recharge uh, very pure water that has gone through the uh, wastewater treatment plant uh, process with uh, microfiltration, uh, uh, UV radiation, uh, reverse osmosis. So we're in a, yes, the drought's very serious, but we're in in a different situation in Orange County than those that are dependent upon water coming out of the Central Valley groundwater basins. And we, I mean, kudos for this whole management of the, the, both the, from the storage standpoint and that you're able to get water consumption, daily water consumption pared down from what was it, 170 gallons per day per residence in, nine, in the early 90s, 1990s, then down to 86 gallons per day presently. So, uh, so when we had this last rain event, I'm not sure who'd like to talk about runoff water retention, but before the irony was in the LA basin, when we had a rain event, we had to have that water move fast as we could out of the area. We didn't want it pooling anywhere. But but it, I do remember hearing that there was an effort in this last rain event, I'm not sure how many before then, to capture that water. I did my little part. I got my gallons. I'm still sort of watering around with the ones that I've retained. But uh, is there any uh, kind of program locally for uh, rain barrel uh, distribution, other kinds of stormwater retention? Um, well, This is Fiona Sanchez at yeah. IRWD. Yeah, Claudia, we actually have uh, rain barrel incentives uh, for our customers. Uh, they can, it's $75 incentive right now for rain barrels, so any RWD customer can benefit from those. And I think a lot of the agencies regionally have similar types of programs, so we are trying to look at that. Uh, there are some challenges with sort of broader-scale stormwater capture just because of the intensity of those storms and being able to have facilities uh, potentially to treat and the water quality off stormwater can be a challenge. Um, That said, there are a lot of efforts, perhaps more inland agencies, where they can have some stormwater uh, capture and reuse. And I think Steve may have something to add to that. Yes, Steve, Lamar. You know, for Orange County, what would help us the most is if we could raise the spillways on Prado Dam so that we could capture more water behind it because uh, water coming down the Santa Ana River is our best opportunity to recharge uh, water into the Orange County uh, groundwater basin. Uh, I've been involved in uh, stormwater task forces around this, this state, and uh, part of the challenge there is it's really highly dependent upon location, and frequently you have to involve uh, 
multiple uh, agencies and jurisdictions because you may have the best opportunities for capture upstream and the need for the water in terms of recharge and storage downstream. So frequently you have to involve uh, water districts, cities, counties, flood control districts. So I see that as really being the challenge to doing more stormwater capture in the future. We're making progress. I've seen a few bills in the California legislature to try to make that uh, easier, but a lot of the things we need to do with stormwater capture are more institutional than they are physical. <laughs> oh, really? That's, that's very interesting. So is there one other takeaway that people might, uh, in their overcome their sense of helplessness by contacting their state assemblyman, their state senator to support these, uh, these programs? I, I think that's always helpful. It's, uh, I get a little uh, frustrated at times dealing with Sacramento because it seems like a lot of the water committees and the discussions are uh, dominated in our uh, legislature more by the central and northern California right. interests. So anything we can do to get Southern California members of the Assembly or Senate more engaged on water issues, I think, will help all of us. Well, maybe Nita can also help us understand, and maybe uh, Steve can go back to that point. When we're, are we? How close are we looking at like a serious eyeball to eyeball discussion of the uh, uh, water? allocation between the sectors that we talked about before, between the, the agricultural sector and the other sectors? How close are we to really, I mean, because I know they're holding on to their Imperial Valley uh, agreements and uh, tapping the Colorado River and the Central Valley. That, those, are, those are fighting words on every billboard we drive by on, on, on the Interstate 5. How close are we to getting to that intellectually honest debate about water allocation? I think the drought will drive everybody to compromise. So it can actually be a force for bringing people together to discuss appropriate allocations. Steve or Fiona, can you from the the municipal to the state kind of dynamic talk about how close we might be? Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to mention that the Irvine Ranch Water District Board of Directors has uh, passed a resolution. We're asking all of our customers to try to reduce their water use on a voluntary basis by 20%. Right. But let's uh, talk a little bit about the water supply situation around the state. We're very fortunate uh, that the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California over the last 20 years has invested billions of dollars in building additional storage in the form of Diamond Valley Lake, uh, groundwater uh, storage in the Central Valley, and even additional storage in Lake Mead on the Colorado River. Uh, in the water world, we talk about large quantities of water using the term uh, acre feet, right. which is uh, a foot of water over an acre, or basically picture a football field with a foot of water on it. Uh, in 1991, Metropolitan had storage for about 200,000 acre feet of water. Today, they have storage capacity for over 5 million acre feet of water. That's amazing. And they have about 3 million acre-feet in storage today. To put that in perspective, last year they sold 1.7 million acre-feet. So sitting you know, in storage today, Metropolitan has almost a two-year supply. Uh, that doesn't mean we can you know, waste water or uh, you know, sit back and do nothing, but it does mean that we're in a pretty good uh, shape from a water supply standpoint throughout most of the metropolitan service area. Well, are we, cons- we? We still need to do everything we can to help out the rest of the state. And the only safe approach from a water planning standpoint is to assume that next year may be as dry as this year. So, right, it's a buffer that lets us gives us some time to learn how to conserve more. That's what it does. Right, but at, at this point, you don't have metropolitan or most Southern California agencies talking about going to mandatory allocations or, or restrictions. If we go through another very wet year, then we'll probably get to that discussion sometime in the future, but it's not happening happening in most of Southern, Southern California Cal- at this point. The, the real need is to try to help out the Central Valley, the Bay Area, the Sacramento area, 
where there are uh, districts that uh, could literally run out of water in a few months unless uh, they get some additional help. Well, that that's dawning, and it's an, it's an amazing sort of a shift here in thinking of where, where the water management, where the water's coming from. I guess it just tells us how institutionally fixed the whole agricultural sector is in, in their way of doing business. Well, I want to uh, say uh, quickly here to local uh, uh, programs rolling out here, upcoming events. Um, as we do that, I, I want to give uh, Steve Fion a chance to talk about the conservation of your customers does not undermine your financial package. Uh, absolutely. Um, IRWD, actually back in 1991, recognized that it was important for us to have a rate structure that accomplished two things. One was that we would have revenue stability, and the other was that it would really promote water conservation. And so we structured it in such a way that when our customers conserve water, it does not impact our revenue stability but it also minimizes how much expensive imported water we have to purchase, and it helps keep rates low for our customers. So there is a direct benefit to our customers from conserving, and there's a direct benefit to the overall district from encouraging our customers to conserve. And for that reason, we've invested uh, substantially in water conservation since that time. We promote conservation and have programs all the time. It's not just during a drought for us. Right. We, think we, we really value it. And so we have always offered a lot of different types of rebate programs, for example, high-efficiency toilets, high-efficiency clothes washers. I've already mentioned right now we've got turf rebates. We've got ir- uh, irrigation controller rebates. And because of those efforts, our customers, as you mentioned earlier, we've reduced our per capita use for residents down from 170 gallons per day down to about 86. So that's a substantial reduction that we've achieved. And so we continue to support that. Um, In fact, this coming weekend, we have an event. uh, We'll be holding it at the the Home Depot that's at the corner of St. Canyon and Irvine Boulevard from uh, 9 till noon. And we're doing um, a California-friendly plant uh, sale so we'll have experts on hand to provide assistance to anybody that wants to stop by and know what plants might be the best to replace their water-thirsty turf with and talk about that. And, and in addition, I already mentioned that we have the, the incentive of $2 a square foot for taking out your turf. So hopefully that's going to be a win-win for our customers. Uh, yes, and as we're wrapping, too, we're, uh, you'll be commemorating the World Day, UN World Water Day with your Fix Elite Fix a leak week, and that's that's now. That's happening now through the uh, the <coughs> end of the week through uh, till Sunday. And I want to give the UCI Hydrologic uh, Center uh, team here a chance to talk about the uh, the other days that are planned. Uh, how the UN World Water Day, the Children's Water Fund Festival will be uh, held on March 26th, 27th. Um, somebody will tell me who wants to. AJ, are you uh, sure? Okay, AJ's here to talk about those events. Yeah, so the uh, Children's Water Festival is going to be held on campus here in Aldrich Park at University of California, Irvine. And um, it's an opportunity for uh, groups like ours and others around the Orange County uh, area to come and share um, information about water to the children, kind of start the education young. And uh, we're going to actually have a booth here on campus um, playing games with some kids. And I think... um, who's some of the other groups that are going to be here. I believe Disney is going to be here and some and OCWD is the other one. and Orange uh, County Water District. Exactly. Okay. So. All the players, all the, the managers. And will IRWD be having a, a, a place at that table too? Um, I, I, we would love to. I'm not so sure that we've been invited to participate, but if invited, we would love to be there. And you, you do, but there is a fair amount of collaboration with your, your local UC center. Uh, for yeah. hydrologic might modeling, but uh, otherwise, but I know everybody's got their own booths to to uh, staff at different locations because there's so much to cover, so many consumers to reach out to. Absolutely. In fact, we we are going to be holding almost. Um, we have almost every few weeks we're holding uh, landscape workshops that are free to anybody to to attend. Um, and we'll actually uh, talk about exactly how you take out your turf and how you how you install drought-friendly landscaping. I think we know that's the biggest source of waste for residential customers 
And so we want to provide them support. And on our website, we have a link to events, uh, www.irwd.com, and our customers can go there for any information about rebates. We have resident tours where we show them uh, our entire distribution system and explain how that all works. We'll put those dates in, the May, June, and September dates on the website summary for the program. And the website is also for saveourh2o.org and the calscape at irwd.com. We know we have those two. Or the, the number to, to pepper folks at the IRWD, uh, if you want to, if it's a uh, Another way to reach them, 949-453-5322. I, I think that it, we've gone a little over, but I knew we had a lot to cover today. It's, it's so global. Everyone has something to do after this uh, interview or after getting the podcast. I want to thank everyone for your time. It's been really good to talk with you today. This was UC Center for Hydrologic Modeling team members, Nita Bajor, Alice Thomas, and A.J. Purdy, along with Irvine Water Management District Board member Stephen Lamar and Fiona Sanchez. She's the Director of Water Resources for IRWD and the Board Chair, as I said, of the California Urban Water uh, Conservation Council. So thank you, everybody, for being on Ask a Leader this morning. Thank Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to be back in just a bit. I'm going to bring on Eddie Hayes, who's going to give us some glimpses, as I said, about the Frida Kahlo, her photos exhibit. Everybody stay tuned. People get ready. We are, that was Ms. Cassidy. She was giving us that summoning tune so that we can all get on board with the water conservation. Now, it's my pleasure to seg to a very aesthetic kind of um, bit of programming. Welcome back. As I said, my next guest is Eddie Hayes. He is the curator at the Museum of Latin American Art in Long Beach, presenting the exhibit which just opened last weekend, Frida Kahlo, Her Photos. And I promise you folks, no spoiler alerts here. You will come upon those surprises when you find your way to the museum. So it's a rare treat while this exhibit is there. My guest today joined the Museum of Latin American Art last November after his three years of curatorial work at the McNay Art Museum in San Antonio, Texas. Eddie earned his BA at the Art Institute of Chicago and his Master's of Arts from the University of Texas at San Antonio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Eddie Hayes. Thank you. Good morning, Claudia. How are you? I'm, oh, I'm. thank you. Fine. I'm, I was so glad to get my own special glimpse uh, last Friday for the media event, and I thank you all, and thank, shout out to Susan Golden for uh, presenting me that opportunity. First, Eddie, Frida Kahlo, the person who celebrated, even cultivated the world round in this exhibit at MOLA, we get a little peek behind the curtain, and then not so. Uh, she's cracking a rare smile, or she's staged similarly as her iconic mm-hmm. projections. Tell us how you've organized this exhibit around her life. Okay, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think many people are familiar with uh, the Frida Kahlo that we see on um, on T-shirts, on the coffee mugs. Uh, we have a very colorful picture of Frida Kahlo. Um, you know, the bright colors, the uh, the parrot, the monkey on her on her shoulder. Um, what we have it at MOLA, at the Museum of Latin American Art here, is uh, is more of a of a shoebox collection. We have uh, photographs that uh, Frida has collected throughout her life, had uh, collected throughout her life, a few photographs that she'd taken herself, um, many photographs that were given to her, and uh, and photographs that she was archiving for Diego Rivera. So um, her husband. It, it's a very yes, her husband, um, who she married, divorced, and remarried. <laughs> um, what we have here is a very intimate look at Frida Kahlo. Uh, it's in black and white. The images are are precious. They're uh, you ha- you can only see them, you know, a foot away <laughs> from the from from the frame of the photograph. So you have to come right up close, and uh, that's what we want. That's what we're offering here uh, at MOLA is uh, is a very close up look 
at Frida Kahlo uh, through the ups and downs in her life. Um, it, uh, you know, if, if you can imagine her as, as this, this major icon, um, and it's a process, that process of, of her becoming an icon is, uh, has taken, you know, 50 years. Um, she's a major, a major icon, not just for art history, for women artists, but for the women's movement. Uh, and a number of, I mean, numbers of groups of people who, who identify with her, her struggles. Um, and so what we're trying to do here at MOLA is, is kind of, humanize her a little bit, bring her, bring her eye level <laughs> and, and show, uh, show what photography meant to her, um, uh, to, to meant to her personally. Well, now um, that um, you're talking about uh, we, uh, as you're presenting that, tell us about who decided which of the 6,500 photos were going to be in this display of 240 photos. Right, so uh, this, you know the story of the collection is incredible. Um, and this uh, in 2007 uh, at Casa Azul, which is the home where Frida Kahlo was born, it's where she died. Uh, there were over 6,500 photographs uh, found, uh, and it was under the direct directorship of Ilya Trujillo, who's, who's still director at Casa Azul. Uh, in fact, she was here for the opening ceremonies. Uh, Ilda. Um, with uh, with a team of archivists cracked into a bathroom closet, a bathroom closet, <laughs> and Seriously. a number of uh, chests and drawers throughout the home, and decided that it was time to share this with the world. Um, the vintage prints uh, of these photographs are at Casa Azul, and it's in uh, the will of Diego Rivera, uh, who you know he uh, all of this came into his hands when when Frida died. Uh, it was in his will that um, these photographs were only to be shared with, with Mexico. Uh, but, you know, the condition was that they couldn't leave Casa Azul. They, could, they can't leave that block. <laughs> they can't leave the front door or the back door. <laughs> so oh. uh, what happened was, um, you know, it was, it was just time. It was just time to share this with the world. Ilya Trujillo, with, uh, they, collect, they selected a curator, uh, Mexican photographer, Pablo Ortiz Monasterio. Uh, together, uh, they made the selection of... Uh, of work that would travel the world here. So, um, you know, it, it's it's a mixture of work, we, uh, of themes. We have here six sections in the show. Uh, her parents, uh, Frida's lovers, um, photography, uh, Diego's, uh, Diego's collection, um, her body, her broken body. So we have here um, this curatorial, you know, structure here that's going to help you organize all of this, all of this material. Right. Um, so that's what we're presenting here at MOLA, the, uh, what, um, what Pablo and Ilda have, uh, have decided to share with, with the rest of the world. And in that, as you were saying, you're talking about family members, we get a chance to see now uh, Guillermo Gallo, her father, her German uh, national father, who mm-hmm. I, he, he repatriated, he called himself Guillermo, not Wilhelm. Correct, uh, correct. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, the role that he, as the so-called court photographer, had to play in how Frida approached her art and projected herself in art. Right, right. Well, uh, you know, the story of Guillermo Carlo is um, really, really comes out here in the exhibition. Um, the story of Guillermo as an influence uh, to Frida Kahlo. Uh, Guillermo, right? He's not he's not Wilhelm <laughs> anymore. Uh, he. Um, He's doing the most Mexican job possible. He's working right. for <laughs> Porfirio Diaz, uh, you know, uh, considered by many as a dicta- as Mexico's dictator. Uh, the Mexican Revolution is centered around toppling his uh, his federal uh, forces. Um, so, uh, you, you know, Frida Kahlo grows up in this uh, middle upper middle class uh, life, and it's all because of Guillermo and his job. Uh, Guillermo is, uh, like you said, a, a staff. Uh, photographer, or kind of a court photographer, um, and so Frida Kahlo grows up with photography. You know, she's uh, she's at home. His father is uh, her father is um, you know he needs um, to practice. You know, and Frida Kahlo is there to for him to play with lighting, and uh, so Frida Kahlo grows up and is becomes really comfortable with the camera. Uh, something in the in the exhibition, which which you'll see, and, and I invite everyone to to come down and just see this for yourselves. Uh, is are, are the self portraits? You know, in in Guillermo's spare time, he's he's taking selfies. <laughs> he's he's playing with the camera. He's uh, we've got a whole wall of 
of self-portraits by Guillermo, and it, I think it's just undeniable the um, the relationship there between between her father and, and then Frida Kahlo's confidence with uh, with with with, a, with portraiture with, with self-portraiture. And, and um, the command of photography and how uh, there is a particular photograph of Frida posing with one of her physicians. Mm-hmm. And so that then it's staged in that photograph. I'm not giving away anything, folks. I just, <laughs> I just want to highlight that the kind of power of her father's imprinting of this medium on her is in that portrait of Frida with her physician is a painting that she did of the physician and the in the photo part the, in real the, the 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 man himself the physician mm-hmm. is giving the expression that she paints on the canvas and it's not an a typical kind of expression there's a kind of a a guffaw in it and uh-huh. so so she she really did take every single leaf out of her father's brochure about uh, <laughs> how you can uh, the power of the photographer to to compose uh, a photograph it's uh, so it's it's really interesting that's a good example of it i think Absolutely, absolutely. That that photograph uh, of her with Dr. Juan Farril, who is uh, not just a physician but but a close friend. Uh, there are many letters that she writes back and forth to Dr. Farril. Um, they're absolutely uh, illuminating and, and, and funny. And, and uh, so yes, uh, Fria Kahlo is so uh, uncomfortable with uh, with the scenario in front of the camera. She's looking straight through the camera every time. Always, just She's like not smiling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know and. Um, Absolutely, her uh, in, the, in, in the way she organized, you know, composed her paintings. Uh, you can also draw relationships there with with a few photographs that are actually in the exhibition that that, that are either um, attributed to her or that we know for a fact uh, she took. Um, there are two comp- compositions, and I think I'll talk about one of them here. Um, you, you'll have to imagine this <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm speaking. We've done lots of visuals on this show. Go ahead, Eddie. <laughs> so uh, we have here uh, a, a very a small. Oh my goodness! It's like three by five. It's a, it's, a, it's a base. It's baseball card size. Uh, it's a small photograph that where Frida is telling the story of her accident. You know, at 18 years old, um, I believe she is. Um, you know, she, she's in this horrific trolley accident. Um, you know, this uh, one of the steel rods of the trolley goes through her pelvis. Uh, that accident, I mean, she's, I mean, it's a miracle she survived that. Yes. That accident marks the rest of her life. It, it influences her art. Um, uh, in this one little photograph here, she's composed with some toys, you know, the little little uh, stuffed doll, uh, a little a little horse and a little toy carriage. Um, she composes this um, to reenact, recreate the um, uh, the accident scene. So um, you know, although photo- although Frida Kahlo, is, she's not a photographer. No. Um, but uh, but she has this fascinating relationship with photography, and uh, and here we see a few moments in the exhibition where you know where she actually she's composing, she's kind of painting uh, inside inside the frame. Right. Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, going back to her father, you know, she would touch up photographs for her father. She she knew the technical process. You know, she uh, ah. there's no reason why she couldn't have become a, a you know a professional photographer. She had she had all the training. She had all of the all of the connections. Well, the practicalities. Uh, if she, I mean, she was able to paint on her back in traction, but it, it would have been impossible to be in a dark room in traction. I guess is part of the reason. The, exactly. That's you know there are a number of things that Frida Kahlo couldn't do and. Um, you know, I learned this recently. There was a there, there was a, uh, a lecture um, that I listened to here. Uh, at UC, it was at UCLA. It was fascinating. Um, there was a, a, um, uh, a doctor here who was talking about uh, Frida Kahlo and all the things that she, that she couldn't do. You know, and uh, she, in fact, she wanted to be a medical student uh, early on. That she had she was starting to go to school. That was her. That was that was one of her first passions. Sure. Frida Kahlo also um, she couldn't dance. You know, she. She ended up losing a leg um, uh, later in life, so there were all of these 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 things limitations to her life. But um, it's, so it's incredible. I think this, the exhibition really highlights um, the adversity, and uh, as well as the number of things she was able to accomplish uh, as well. 
For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Eddie Hayes, Assistant Curator at the Museum of Latin American Art, about the opening of their newest exhibit this last weekend, Frida Kahlo, Her Photos, here on Ask a Leader on 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming the world round in museum stores uh, at KUCI.org. Well, we are very fortunate, I know, Eddie, to have this exhibit practically in our midst from now until June 8th before these photos head to uh, Cur- uh, Curitiba, Brazil. I guess that's Correct. so it can be, cl- I don't know if it was time to be close to the the uh, the soccer um, the soccer games, but our, uh, <laughs> the original photos, are they on exhibit from time to time at Casa Azul in Mexico? Yes, uh, they are on uh, on view uh, at Casa Azul from time to time, um, although only a, a very small selection. Casa Azul is not is not uh, it's not a it's not uh, a large space. It's a home. It's a it's a um, it's a colonial revivalist home. It, it's it's very intimate, um, and they have a number of objects on view uh, of Frida Kahlo's, but. Um, and if you were to see all of the vintage prints, uh, you need to make a special appointment. Uh, you need to put some gloves on, and uh, you kind of need to go one by one. Uh, the exhibition that we're presenting at MOLA, that, uh, as you mentioned, will travel to Brazil next, uh, and then on to uh, New Zealand and other places throughout Europe, um, uh, this is the only place where you can see the story in a space, where you can walk through uh, without having to wear gloves, and to see and to see these images, um, absolutely. This is this is the one way to to get the story in kind of in a uh, in a walkthrough. Absolutely. And there, it's especially with photographs and the way these are presented, you can literally get within inches of it. And there's nothing. There's no barrier, and it's important because of in one instance there is a a courtyard photograph of Casa Azul, and and as you mentioned, you didn't you couldn't tell from <laughs> the preliminary work, but once it arrived at at Mola, you could see, oh, there's Frida and there's uh, Diego in there. And so it's like all those choice little things. And, and there's lots of other stories. We're not even going to go there so everybody can be <laughs> surprised that, oh, those people photographed her or those right. were her lovers. or yes, And, yes. and the, I just want to hasten to say as we're going to try to wrap up here is yes. that there are some, there is on one wall of one gallery, there are excised photos that uh, were a big were there's lots of theories about whether those were photos that she wanted to excise to for non-disclosure or possibly as gifts for people or there's other I can imagine that she needed to have some of those as her own kind of baseball card sort of photographic Uh what you can tell us about the meaning of having those photos with her when she was out traveling with her husband or out uh, uh, being hospitalized Correct, correct. So uh, there are photographs that, uh, you know, again, this, 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 this collection here is, uh, it, it's not what Frida Kahlo handed out to, uh, you know, to, to poster makers and to uh, filmmakers. I mean, this isn't, these aren't the images that we, that are popularized. Um, these are images, like you're saying, that, that she, you know, from her travels, um, you know, she, she, she's taken snapshots, she takes them back home, and, and you know, maybe she's reflecting on, on these stories, just like, just like we do, you know. I mean, some of these are, some of the photographs are, um, are from her travels, you know, it's, it's, it's trip photography. Um, but uh, her travels and her friends and her associations and her, her, her social, political, cultural milieu is just, it's so worldly that it, uh, it, it looks like an exhibition. <laughs> it doesn't look like a scrapbook. Exactly. Um, and and you know, so yes, we have. Uh, I can can't I can count the number of images taken or or attributed to Frida Kahlo on my hand. Right. Uh, <laughs> four or five or so. Yes. Yes, it's four or five. It's it's uh, it's incredible. And there are a series of photographs where, you know, she's really. Um, She's intervening into the photograph. We have her uh, her kissing the back of uh, of a photograph of a, uh, um, a Frenchman who she had a crush on. He got two kisses. There's another one of Diego Rivera, and he only gets one kiss <laughs> stamped on there. So you see this red lipstick uh, on on the cover of the Funny. on the face of the photograph. I wasn't counting, but you're right. There is an editorial <laughs> uh, uh, comment in how many smacks you get on your uh, image. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, then there are a series of photographs too, uh, which uh, in which Frida Kahlo has cut people out. She has cut. She has a disagree a disagreement with someone, and uh, she cuts that person's face out of the out of the photograph. Yet she keeps the she keeps the photograph. Um, there um, there is debate there is debate as to whether uh, 
um, you know, these images she was cutting into, you know, well, actually she was cutting a face up because she was going to use it for, uh, for a painting, kind of a source material for someone's face that she was going to use in a painting. Um, or if she, um, or, or if she, you know, threw away that material and was just kind of leaving a mark for us to read years later <laughs> about how she felt about certain people. So uh, in terms of her, you know, uh, dealing with photography, using it, it's uh, it's almost like note taking. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a form of um, it's a form of record keeping. It's also a form of uh, of expression too, especially within the, the cut works um, that that are here on view. Exactly. Well, I'm afraid we don't let to give Eddie Hayes a chance to talk about all the events. But believe me, mm-hmm. folks, Mola knows how to put all kinds of events and programs around each of their exhibits. Um, I can direct you to the it's, it's M-O-L-A-A.org, uh, that website, to, to get the, the, any of the events that are occurring. There's, there's going to be many, and this museum runs until June 8th of this year. So, Eddie, it's a, it's, it's a sweet delight to see this side of Frida Kahlo, and the same can be said for talking about today with you on Ask a Leader. Thank you for joining us today. Claudia, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was Eddie Hayes, the Museum of Latin American Art Curator, uh, as the museum presents the exhibit, Frida Kahlo, Her Photos. Well, here's some announcements before we head over to George Rosales. I do have a few of them. Tonight, the pre-Noru celebration of running the fire will be held in many a backyard, as well as Big Corona Beach, maybe, just days ahead of the Persian New Year. And the official start of the New Year on our time zone is Thursday, March 20th at 9.57.57 a.m. And who's keeping track? Later on the same day, Thursday, I'll be filling in for Kimberly Martin. Uh, This would be from 4 to 5 p.m. with a fresh new show I'm going to produce. It's guns and autism. They're going to be the topics. Hope you can join me on that same dial, this one, the same dial. Then next week, I'll have on Shiima Hall, who's come out with a book on her Orange County saga that you might remember. The book's entitled... Hidden Girl, The True Story of a Modern-Day Slave. Then we'll hear from John Kabashima, an environmental horticultural advisor with the UCI Cooperative Extension. Some people call him a wise kraken plant sage. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for joining me today and listening. Next up is Senior George Rosales, George Had a Hat, and Heather later on tonight at 6. Talk to you next week. <music>